Good morning. Listen, Travis said that to me last night, for real, when he said, you know they called the cops. I was like, oh, snap, I'm about to run. I, I thought he was for real. No, I appreciate that encouragement. Uh, Travis and Esther are my people. I love them so much, and I am I'm really grateful that he uh, uh, was uh, willing with the rest of the pastoral staff to invite me up here to be able to talk to you this weekend. And uh, I really appreciate uh, your attentiveness and your presence during um, the preaching. It's, it's really a different experience than is often the case when you're laying it out there and people are like, <laughs> I can't even keep a straight face when I'm, you know. Um, so it means a lot. I'm grateful for the Lord's work in your lives and the way that you receive the word. And I'm excited to get into our passage for this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. So if you would, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And we are going to, we're going to begin with verse 21. When you're there, say amen. If you're not there yet, say, hold up. up. All right, some of y'all need to do some sword drills. Come on. (laughs) Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. If you are new to the Bible, it's the first book of the New Testament. And if you are new to the Bible and you're having a hard time finding it, just ask your neighbor. They'll help direct you, okay? No shame, no shame. Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to begin reading with verse 21. This is God's word. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. If you would, please pray with me. Lord, thank you for these dear friends. Thank you for your word. We're grateful that your word doesn't just tell us what we want to hear. Your word tells us what we need to hear, what we must hear if we would have life, if we would thrive, if we would be your people in the world and bear witness to your great love in the gospel. So we pray this morning you would give us tender hearts, soft hearts, help us to be teachable under your word, being reminded that Jesus is always the true preacher when his word goes out faithfully. We pray that you would help us to hear it as if from your very mouth, that we would receive this, your word, and not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I went off to college, I went off with the intentions of having myself a good time. Maybe some of you out there can relate with that. I went out and I wanted to get the biggest and the baddest meal plan. I did, I did, I ate like a king. I wanted to stay in the best dorms that I could possibly stay in. And, and I really spent most of my time trying to figure out how I could, I could have the best possible college experience that I could from an amenities standpoint, not necessarily from an academic standpoint. And so, I had a great time going to college. I went to NYU. I was in New York City. And, uh, and after I graduated college, I had so much fun in school, I decided I was going to go and do another six years of school in seminary. <laughs> so I went off to seminary, and I remember I was in my first semester of seminary. And I got this piece of mail uh, from Citibank. Um, I had never gotten anything from Citibank, but here I was with a letter from Citibank in my hands. And I, I said, that's, that's strange, you know, because I've never heard from them. My mom dealt with Citibank. You know, she did that for me. I didn't know anything about it. So I open up the letter, and I begin to read. And the, the letter goes something like this. Dear Russell, congratulations on graduating from college. It is now time to start paying your student loan debt. When I looked at what I owed, <laughs> that piece of paper went out of my hand. It was like slow motion. It was like a violin playing real sad music. <laughs> it was just going like this. And I was like... <laughs> All that time in college that I was living it up, getting the best meal planned, staying in the best dorms, having the greatest possible time I could in the amenities of the college, it had never occurred to me that I was racking up debt that whole time, and at some point, I was going to have to pay. It had never even crossed my mind for some reason that everything that I was doing was going to have implications for me later on, that I was going to have to pay. Now, I picked that letter back up, and I looked at it, and it, you know, they do this funny thing where they tell you what the sum total of your debt is, and then they break it out into payments, and I was like, yeah, no matter how you calculate this, I ain't got this money, right? This is not looking good for me. 
But I continued to read through the rest of that letter and a ray of hope broke through when I came across this line that said this, you may qualify for a debt forgiveness program that is backed by the federal government. And when that line came through, everything began to change in my attitude because I began to imagine what my life could be like if my debt were forgiven. I began to imagine all the freedom and financial bandwidth that I would have and I would be able to do different things if I didn't have this debt over my life. Everything changed when I saw the possibility that this astronomical debt that I owed to Citibank could be forgiven. Now, you may not have school debt. You may not have credit card debt. You might not have mortgage debt. But every single person in this room tonight and every single person in Philadelphia and every single person around the world has sin debt. We all owe God our very lives. And all of us have sinned against him and have accumulated debt throughout our lives, through the things that we have said, through the things that we have not said, through the things that we have thought, through the things that we have not thought, through the things that we have done, and through the things that we have not done, all of us have accumulated debt. And it maybe has never occurred to you the weight of the debt that you owe to God. Maybe it's never dawned on you. But here's the thing. In the very moment that you actually learn of your debt in the past, from the past sins that you've committed, you in that very moment are accumulating more debt. And the amazing thing is this, when I got the letter from Citibank, my wages at the time were below the poverty line. And it's a very similar thing. When you learn of your spiritual debt that you owe to God, the debt of your very life, at the very moment you are in spiritual bankruptcy. You have no hope of paying this debt back. There is nothing that you can do in order to make it right. But the good news of God's grace is that the same letter that tells you of your debt also breaks through with a ray of hope that lets you know that you may qualify for the Lord's debt forgiveness program. And, and if you begin to imagine what it could look like for your debt to be forgiven, if you know deeply what it means to have your debt canceled, you will begin to see a new kind of life on the other side of that. You'll begin to recover mental, emotional, and relational bandwidth that you did not know was possible. You'll have a whole new attitude on life if you know the hope of being forgiven. Now, over the course of this weekend, we are talking about reconciliation, okay? We're talking about parties that are at enmity being brought together. This is one of the things that God is out to do in the creation of the church. This is one of the things that God has been about from the very beginning. People who are reconciled with him, he then aims to have reconciled with one another, and it's one of the unique ways that we as God's church are able to be an audiovisual of what the gospel is all about. It's one of those things that God has given us. And so in the course of talking about reconciliation, last night we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And 
we began to get a sense of the call to neighbor love and the cost of neighbor love. This morning, we are going to talk about forgiveness because I think there are very few things that are more urgent in the Christian life and particularly in reconciliation than forgiveness. And at the same time, there are very few things that have fallen on harder times in our cultural moment than forgiveness. And so I want to get into our text for this morning by hitting it with two points. We're going to see the kingdom principle of forgiveness and the kingdom practice of forgiveness. The kingdom principle of forgiveness and the kingdom practice of forgiveness. So let's look at our first point, the kingdom principle of forgiveness. Now, if you're reading along through the Gospel of Matthew, you will know that right before our passage that was just read, Jesus gives a teaching to his disciples on what relationships in God's kingdom should look like when one person sins against another person. When one person sins against another person, there must be a confrontation. And don't think of that as overly hostile. There must be a face-to-face. There must be a reckoning with that sin that has been committed against someone. And then forgiveness. But this is exactly what gives immediate rise to Peter's question. So Peter's like, all right, Lord, I get that. We're we're supposed to be forgiven. I, I get that. But how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And Peter goes, he, he does something like this. He goes, seven times? Because Peter thought he was being very generous with saying seven times. Because the rabbis at the time taught that you were obligated to forgive up to three times. If someone sins against you, they got three chances. And after three times, you are no longer obligated to forgive. So Peter says, what about seven times? He thought he was being generous. You know, Lord, should I forgive him up to seven times? He thought Jesus was going to say, Peter, what a magnanimous human being you are. Seven times forgiveness? It's inconceivable. But Jesus instead says, oh, no, Peter, I don't tell you seven, but 77. And of course, Jesus is not speaking literally. Jesus is saying, there must be no limit to your forgiveness. There is no cap on your forgiveness. You must go on forgiving. You must stop counting the number of offenses that have been levied against you. It doesn't matter how often they sin against you. Just go on forgiving. Now, Jesus is doing something interesting with this choice of 77. He could have said, nah, I say to you 100 times. But he chooses a very odd number, right? 77. And the only other time you come across this is back in the book of Genesis. Now, in the book of Genesis, you may be familiar with it, the the story of God creating and mankind bringing the world into sin through disobedience. And after the story of Adam and Eve, we come across the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain kills his brother Abel. And after Cain kills Abel, what God does is he puts a stop to this idea of vengeance, right? Because he, he knows that if, if one person gets revenge for the other, then it'll, the, the cycle of revenge will keep happening. And so he says, whoever 
whoever brings vengeance on Cain, I will avenge, right? But in between the story of Cain and Abel and the, and the story of the flood with Noah, we get this interesting story that takes place. The seventh in the line of Cain is a man named Lamech. And Lamech offers this boast, right? It's actually the first instance of gangster rap in the Bible. If, if you're not familiar, <laughs> it's poetry. And, and this man Lamech says to his wives, he boasts of, of murder. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech is avenged 77-fold. How I could just kill a man. Like, this is, this is Lamech, right? He, that's what he did. That's what he said to his wife. That's the Russ Whitfield International version. <laughs> this is something you can't understand. All right. You know, I have to do a lot of self-editing. There's a lot that goes through my head when I'm talking about, don't say that, don't say that, don't say that. First instance of gangster rap. But what Lamech does is he lays out this principle of unlimited vengeance. He says, he says, if anyone comes at me, unlimited vengeance, this is the principle upon which I live. And what Jesus does by calling his disciples to forgive 77 times is they would have known this story and that number would have stuck out to them and they would have seen that Jesus was meeting the principle of unlimited vengeance with the principle of unlimited forgiveness. The unlimited vengeance of this old man is replaced by the unlimited forgiveness of the God-man. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what's happening in terms of biblical theology. This is, this is the, the trajectory of, of this passage in terms of Jesus' allusion here. This primitive man's vengeance is transformed by the God-man's forgiveness. And in order to illustrate this story, in order to illustrate this idea, Jesus jumps into a story to illustrate the kingdom principle of forgiveness. And he begins to tell the story of this king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. They owed him. And in the context of this story, what we see is this picture that is being established for us. Jesus often puts our human practices into story form so we can get a sense of what they really are like. Because a lot of times we can't see the outworkings of our thinking. We, we, we don't really, like you could say that someone is being unforgiving, but to put that in a story form so that they can get a little distance from it to get perspective on it and see the outworkings of it, it begins to dawn on them in a new way. And there's an emphasis in this parable on the extravagant character of forgiveness taken up in the story. And it places the disciples' forgiveness of others squarely upon the foundation of God's forgiveness of the disciple. Do you see that? That's the kingdom principle. The forgiveness that we are called to show is the very forgiveness that we have received. This is the principle. And in verses 24 through 25 we are given a sense of the way in which this has worked for us. How has God done us? How has God treated us when it comes to forgiveness? And he tells the story of a king that is owed 10,000 talents by his servant. And here's what's interesting. 
10,000 was the single largest number that you could make with the Greek language at the time. It was the biggest number you could express, and a talent was the largest unit of currency. Jesus is making the parable particularly graphic. The, the, the phrase 10,000 talents could also be understood as he had an unlimited debt. It's like when we say, it's like when my kids say, Dad, I'll give you a bajillion dollars if you let us have candy tonight, right? Like, a bajillion, it's not, it's like bigger than can be numbered. Some of y'all smart folks out there is like, actually a bajillion is a. <laughs> I'm not a mathematician, I'm a, I'm a creative at heart. I'm to do all those numbers and stuff. But another thing that's interesting about this number is that it was more money than was in circulation at the time. There wasn't even this much money in circulation at the time. So what we are given is this astronomical debt. It's beyond measure. It's beyond imagination. It's hyperbole for an unpayable debt. It was practically incalculable. And in verse 26 through 27, we see this servant is desperate. He's desperate because he knows that he owes he knows that he's on the hook. He doesn't debate the debt. He knows the debt is real, but he has no means of paying it. And so he begs for time and promises to pay everything back. He doesn't have resources or hope, but he begs and he promises, just give me a little more time and I will pay you back. And everyone listening at the time would have known that this was a hopeless impossibility. This was not possible. The king, though, essentially says, I know you can't repay me, but I'll forgive the debt. I know you can't repay me, but I will cancel the debt. As much as the man made a promise to pay, he simply could not, and everyone would have known it. No matter his talk, no matter how much he promised, he simply couldn't do it. Not in many lifetimes could he have repaid this debt. Be patient with me and I will pay back everything. Is as pitifully untrue and threadbare as our own excuses and promises. I'll start going to church. I'll start reading the Bible. You know folks that feel like if they read a chapter a day to keep the devil away, that's... That's going that's gonna to that's gonna do it. I'll start treating people better. You know, I'm going to start being a good person. It's like all the promises of the man in the parable. This is it's not, it's simply not possible to repay this debt. And we immediately see the point that Jesus is making to his disciples. This is the way in which you're on the hook to God but this is the way in which God has forgiven your debt. This is what God is like to us. Our debts have been piling up for years. They've been piling up with every bad deed and word and thought. Every hour adds to them. They can't be paid, and God says, I release you from that debt. But here's the thing that's often underappreciated, is the fact 
that the king himself had to take the loss. In order for this servant to be restored, the king himself had to take the loss. And it's very much at this point that we begin to see the beauty of the gospel shining forward. Because I've, I've had many conversations with many people who struggle to believe that they, that they are in debt to God, that they owe God. And they take their own janky little interpretation on their sins. You know, what's the big deal? But here's what we see. It's at the cross that we begin to get a sense of the debt that we owe. If you think that your sins are not that bad, you must go to the cross to see that it took the Son of God hanging on the cross in order to deal with your debt. That's how staggering it was. That's how staggering the debt of sin is. If, you wanna under, if, you, if you're tempted to think that you're not that bad, go to the cross. And at the same time, if you're tempted to think that God is not that good, go to the cross. What is God like toward us? The cross is the Rosetta Stone of the world. It's the way we interpret the entirety of the world. Our lives in this world, our moral and ethical lives before God, our failures, what God is doing in the world. It puts a new perspective on our sufferings and our trials because many people interpret the sufferings and trials of life in such a way that they view it as God's absence and God's rejection and a failure of God's love and presence. But you got to understand that if you had been a spectator, right? We, we look at our suffering and we say, this is pointless, this is meaningless, where's God, what's the deal? I don't, I don't even know what to do here. But here's, here's what you have to re realize. If you had been a spectator on Good Friday, and you had been watching what was happening on Good Friday, you would have concluded that all of this was pointless and meaningless suffering. It's terrible. Good rabbi, it's a shame. He gets, he gets hung up by the Roman government and his own, his own religious leadership. It's a shame. What good could come out of this? This is terrible. And you would have gone off thinking that nothing good could really come out of this. This was pointless suffering. This was pointless. And you would have been dead wrong. Because that was the very hinge point of the ages. This was the very climax of history. It was the change of everything. The cross is our interpretive grid for all of life, for all of our sufferings, for all of our trials, for all of our failures. We see that our failures are real and true and deep but we see that God's grace and love are truer and deeper and richer than any of our failures. Grace that is greater than all my sin is how the hymn writer put it. This is where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Where does Paul get that paradigm from? The cross. The cross is what brings us back to our senses. And, 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 and the reason why it brings us back to our senses is this. Only love can bring us back to our senses. Only love can make us think clearly again and see truly again and to get in step with the rhythms of God's kingdom and God's ways in the world. Only the, the love of God in the gospel can do that. Here's the deal. I could have done a song and dance for Citibank. I could have said, listen, man, I, I'm going to try hard. I'm going to try. I, I promise you I'm going to try my best. 
I don't have the money right now, but I'm going to try my best. I could have said, giving them any number of excuses. You know, I got four kids, Citibank. I don't know what I'm going to do about this debt. It doesn't matter. Citibank's like, you got to pay. And the beauty of the gospel is that, yes, the debt must be paid, but the king has absorbed the loss. He's the one who makes the payment. He's the one who takes that loss so that we could be restored, so that we could be forgiven. Now, I want to give you a word from an ancient, an ancient saint, African church father, Augustine. The African church father, Augustine, was preaching to his people on forgiveness. And he said this about Jesus. He said, he accepted what was not his due, and he gave us what was not ours. And then he pressed in on his people. And I want you to hear this. This is ancient wisdom, right? This is wisdom across cultures, and this is the only way to really get wisdom, is to listen to voices from outside of our world to help expose our blind spots and bring truth to bear. This is what Augustine says to his people. He says, I want you to be forgiving, for I've caught you begging for pardon. I've caught you begging for pardon, so I want you to be forgiving. He says this, forgive, don't recoil, because you will be the very person in need of seeking forgiveness before the sun goes down on you today. You see what Augustine's saying? Whenever we refuse forgiveness, we're sawing at the branch that holds us up. This is, this is laid upon the Christian. This is laid upon the church. I want you to be forgiving. But in verses 28 through 35, Jesus completes the back half of his story. This is a powerful, a powerful didactic move that Jesus makes here. Because what he's going to do is he's going to bring it into very stark relief for us the ugliness and the, the evil, the wickedness, he calls it, of unforgiveness. In verses 28 through 35, we get the opposite side of the mirror. And this same man who was freshly released from his debt does the unthinkable. The ink had not even dried on his debt cancellation paperwork, and he goes out to a fellow servant who owes him and he begins to choke him and tell him, pay me what you owe me. Now listen, we're, getting, we're given a comparison of the respective debts as well. This fellow servant only owes him a hundred denarii. It's not very much. This man has just been forgiven an immeasurable debt. And then he goes to one who owes him a little bit of money and he begins to inflict violence on him. He chokes him. Have you ever been so mad at somebody that you choked them? Not for real though. Have you ever choked somebody? <laughs> I've never choked anybody. I've wanted to, but I never have. Think about it. Let the story work on you. Like, like that's the, again, like last night we said, stories are given by Jesus to work on you. Let your imagination get into this. Could you imagine this man being in such a state that freshly 
forgiven, he goes and he chokes a fellow servant out for a few bucks. We're beginning to see the state of this man's spirituality, the state of his soul. He chokes him out and he says, pay me what you owe me. Now look at what Jesus does. Jesus puts the very words that were on this man's mouth when he asked the king, he says, please, look at the words. He uses the exact same phrase. Fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And his fellow servant says to him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. You see, Jesus is showing you, like, do you see? Do you see what's happening here? He has the man jailed after choking him. And we see the mirror effect. Now, here's the thing. As a reader, what is your reaction to this story? It's the same reaction that the people at the time would have had. Indignation. It makes you angry to see this man treating his fellow servant in this way after he's experienced this kind of mercy. Now look, here's the deal. If the whole preceding part of the story hadn't happened, it would have been reasonable for this servant to go to his fellow servant and tell him to pay what he owed without the choking. It would have been reasonable. But what changes everything in this story is the fact that what precedes it is the extraordinary forgiveness of his extraordinary debt. It's that context that shows the wickedness of what he is doing right now. The king has changed everything for this servant. He has absolutely, absolutely revolutionized this man's life. He's created an entirely new world for this servant. And the way in which he lives, he lives in such a way that it's as if the forgiveness of the king has never happened. That's what we see in this text. This is what makes us indignant. He's re received extraordinary grace and then he doesn't show the slightest grace himself. The king has rewritten the ordinary rules of behavior but the beneficiary of that new world acts as if it never happened. The servant, here's the deal, this servant consigned his debtor to a fate that he himself escaped by mercy. He assigns him to a fate that he himself had escaped by mercy. And do you see the lesson? In Christ, God has torn up the pages of our debts. Our failure to forgive wrongs, it's absolutely outrageous. That's what Jesus is saying. The way we cling to unforgiveness on this side of the cross, on this side of the gospel is outrageous. It's unconscionable for us to, to cling to our, our mode of unforgiveness. To insist on our rights not to be generous, our right to feel hurt and resentful, our right to seek revenge, all that is to live as if the king's debt forgiveness had never happened. The kingdom principle is that we forgive because God has forgiven us to an unimaginable extent. And here's, here's an important thing to see. 
Forgiving is not excusing the sin. It's not excusing the debt. It's resisting the desire to hold that wrong against them. It's not excusing the sin. I tell people all the time, when someone comes to you and says, hey, I wronged you, I'm sorry. When people say, it's all right, don't say it's all right. It's not all right. But you have the opportunity to be, to act in a sacramental way, for, to be a small picture when you say, I forgive you. That's, that echoes all the way from Calvary. And you get to bring that into their lives, to introduce that into their lives. Forgiveness does not excuse the sin. It simply refuses to hold that wrong against them. It's a resistance. I'm not going to hold your sins against you. I'm going to resist it. As much as I want to hold that against you, as much as I want to throw it in your face, as much as I want to make you feel bad about it, I'm resisting the desire to hold your sins against you. I am going to decouple you from your sin. And isn't that what God does when he views us? God does not view you as that chump who looks at stuff on his computer that he shouldn't. That's not how God looks at you. God does not look at you as that girl who is envious of her friend because she got that new Gucci bag. Come on, we're going to tell the truth in here. God does not look at you as that selfish jerk who only thinks about themselves most of the time. No. You know how God looks at you? He looks upon you with the same love with which he looks upon his son Jesus because you're in union with him. And because you know God looks at you that way, because you know God has decoupled you from your sin, as the Old Testament scriptures say, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. I have thrown your sins into the sea of forgetfulness. It's working that out in the context of our relationships. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna decouple you from your sin. I'm gonna resist the desire to see you only as the conglomeration of your series of failures and sins. I'm not gonna view you that way because God doesn't view me that way. It doesn't remove disciplinary action, it removes punitive action. And that's an important distinction. This is the kingdom principle of forgiveness. He forgives us so that forgiveness should become the practice of our lives. That's the principle, but let's move on to the second point, the kingdom practice of forgiveness. Now, what Jesus teaches in this parable is that unforgiveness is ethical heresy for the Christian. And what I mean is this. Heresy was understood in the church. It means to choose for oneself. So there was the delivered over teaching of the church and the heretic was the person who decided to choose their own teaching. By saying that unforgiveness is ethical heresy is to say that it is choosing a different ethic in which unforgiveness is acceptable. It's choosing an ethic that is very different from the Christian ethic of forgiveness. It's, it's a heretical mode of life. That's what unforgiveness actually is. And the sad reality is that many of us are more practiced in unforgiveness than forgiveness. Think about it. If we had a penny for every time we needed forgiveness, we would be rich. 
And if we had a dollar for every time we extended forgiveness, we'd be broke. Right? I want you to look at verse 31 and remember how these things came to light. Remember how the wicked servant got busted. His fellow servants saw. People are watching. And we say we want other people to come to understand the grace and love of God, but we often fail to realize that we're becoming a barrier to them getting the grace and love of God because we refuse to forgive our brothers and sisters. We refuse to forgive those who have sinned against us. God has designed us to be an audiovisual of the gospel, and as much as our words say we want people to come and to know the love and grace of Jesus, we forsake, we betray, we undermine the opportunities that we have to demonstrate it when we choose to practice unforgiveness. That's why it seems so unbelievable to the world because they see so little forgiveness among us. They see us bickering with one another on social media, demeaning one another, blasting one another. They see people taking the social media and they're bold on social media and then their lives are absent of the very truths they were announcing on social media. Denouncing one another despising one another. I think that's what they see. They see vindictive revenge and retribution. They see statements from Christian leaders that say, I'm done with those people. And it is this experience that shapes their understanding of what God is like. Now I wanna ask you a question. Does your way with people say to the world, I've been forgiven an astonishing debt? Is that what your way with people, does it, what, is that what that says to the people around you? Does your way with others say, I've been forgiven an astonishing debt? What would others conclude about God's way with people from your way with people? There are so many people that I talk to in Washington, D.C. on a regular basis who are non-Christians. They used to be Christians. They grew up in the church, but they walked away. Because they concluded that God's way with people must be like the way that the people in their church were like. That's the way God is like toward people. Mean-spirited, exacting, impatient, peeved all the time, condescending toward people outside of the faith, judgmental. You know, here's the thing. Let's just, let's just, this is a sidebar. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but this is a sidebar. Um, we need to draw a distinction between judgment and judgmentalism, okay? The scriptures tell the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are to judge one another. It says we're not supposed to judge people outside of the church. And judgmentalism is different from judgment, and a lot of times we mistake the two. When someone calls us to account in love on the basis of what the scriptures teach, that's not being judgmental. That's, that's rendering appropriate judgment because judgment is simply a, a, a determination of right and wrong. And here's the deal. For as much as people say, you can't judge me, two things, two things. First, people have often said to me, 
you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And I often say to them, and that's a comfort to you? (laughs) That shouldn't be comforting, my friend. But the other thing is people say, you can't judge me. All right, now here's the deal. This is what's what's interesting. Um, Everybody, no matter how much they use that phrase, you can't judge me, everybody in here wants to be judged. When someone says to you, you know, you're really good at playing the piano, that's a judgment. But you have never heard anyone say, you can't judge me, (laughs) right? No, you've never heard that. Here's the thing. We all want to be judged. We long to be judged. We just want a favorable judgment. And here's where the conflict comes from. The conflict comes from this. Everything in our hearts is longing for a favorable judgment. And everything in our lives says that we do not warrant it. And that's where the conflict comes from. The reason why people say, you can't judge me, don't judge me, is because they know that if you were to judge them, you would find all the dirt and all the ugly and all the brokenness, and they would be ruined. But you want some good news on judgment? Here's some good news on judgment. The good news is this, that in the gospel, there is a way for us to receive the favorable judgment we've been longing for through the performance of another even though everything in us cries out that we deserve an unfavorable judgment, everything in Jesus, everything in the gospel cries out for favorable judgment. That's the good news. Sidebar, over. <laughs> All right. I just felt like, I, felt like the Lord wanted me to say that. What do others conclude about God's way with people from your way with people? That he's tender? that he's patient, that he's merciful and generous, that he's kind, that he's forbearing? I mean, we throw these words around, but think about it, forbearance. That's to continue to put up with someone. It's to continue to bear with them in their insufficiencies, in their shortcomings, in their weaknesses, in their sins. I'm sticking with you. Yes, your sins are maddening sometimes. You make me crazy sometimes, but I'm not giving up on you. I'm bearing with you. In Paul's language in Galatians, he talks about bearing one another's burdens. Do people conclude that that's what God is like because that's the way you deal with people? You know what one of the sobering things is, is that in John 17, Jesus hitches his reputation to the way in which we, lo- we live together in love. Jesus hitches his reputation to his church. That's, 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 that's a, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Wow. Like that's bold, Jesus. I wouldn't hitch my reputation to the church. But he has. He says the world will know about love by the way that you love one another. They'll know about my relationship to the Father based upon the way you love one another. He hitches his reputation to the way we love others. It reminds us of that sad quote by Gandhi where he says, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. Dang. All right? 
It's one thing to want to forgive, and it's another thing to not want to forgive. Like, I'm, I'm, no, I don't, I'm sticking here. How do we practice this? How do we practice this? Let me give you some things. First, stop nursing minor hurts, injuries, and grudges. Stop nursing. Stop nursing minor hurts, injuries, and grudges. Now, I got four kids. I've seen some nursing. And one of the things that's interesting about nursing is that when you nurse a baby, you moms out there can testify, when you nurse a baby, that baby doesn't stay the same size. (laughs) The more you nurse the child, the bigger it gets, and pretty soon they're full-grown eating steak. My kids are like the seven-year locust. They come through the kitchen, it's gone. Everything is stripped bare. Man, they know my name at Costco. They do. Hey, Pastor. I come out, I come out with one of the, you know them Costco receipts? You walk, you're like, this thing is all the way, it's 25 miles long. You see, many of us, have been nursing resentment so long that it is now full-grown and eating steak. We've been nursing our bitterness toward people so long that it's now full-grown and eating everything up. It's become a massive thing in our lives when you nurse the little grievances. I think, honestly, I think that the state of affairs in American culture today, particularly in the American church, is the result of the nursing of resentments, the nursing of grudges. So stop nursing, stop nursing your grudges. Stop nursing minor hurts and injuries. I want you to remember the words of Jesus. What does he call that servant? Wicked servant. You don't hear Jesus say that very often. It seems like in Jesus' mind, there is a particular wickedness to one who has received his lavish forgiveness and yet refuses to extend it. That's a wicked servant. The next thing I'll tell you in terms of practice, so stop nursing. Two, stop confusing. Stop confusing strength with weakness and weakness with strength. In much of American culture, we celebrate strength. And if you look on social media, you see that we celebrate those who put others in their place. They told them like it was. They were hard, they lit them up. Did you see that? Yeah, get that joker. You know, you let them, let them know. You know, you gotta give it to them sometimes. You gotta, we don't celebrate gentleness. We confuse weakness with strength and strength with weakness. And you know what has gotten caught up into that? In our cultural moment, forgiveness is weakness and it is shunned and rejected. Don't confuse the two. Don't celebrate hardness and putting people in their place and others getting what they deserve. You know what? There's a lot of talk about karma these days, right? I'm gonna tell you something right now. Don't nobody in here wanna live by karma. If you're true, about what's going on in your heart and you know the thoughts that go through your head, you don't want karma. But here's the deal. 
for a lot of us Christians, oftentimes it's the case that we want grace for ourselves and karma for them. I want grace, Lord, like grace, grace, God's grace. They sing it for themselves. But then for them out there, they're like, yeah, yeah, get them, get them, get them, Lord, get them. They say, I'm going to pray for you. But they pray the imprecatory psalms. Lord, strike them on the jaw, Lord. Break, break them on the jaw. <laughs> right? We want grace for ourselves, karma for them. But listen, that's a confusion of weakness and strength. Don't be duped by our culture. You know what? It's going to be hard. But we must resist the culture in these important ways. The culture wants us to get even. God wants us to get grace. And the only way you get grace, the only way you digest grace, is when you have to show it. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, everybody loves forgiveness until they have to show it. <laughs> oh, St. Clive. <laughs> right? That's good, isn't it? That's a good word. You can say the same thing about pretty much every facet of our faith. Everyone loves grace until they have to show it. Everyone loves mercy until they have to show it. Everyone loves patience until they have to show it. That's all the grace for me, karma for you thing. That's not supposed to be the way we operate. And we have to start practicing this painful mercy at home, in the rhythms of our homes. Whether you are married with children in your home or you live with a roommate, this is where it begins, those rhythms. And more specifically, the rhythms of confession and repentance. Listen, you will never be long on forgiveness so long as you are short on confession. Anyone who is short on confession cannot be long on forgiveness. If your confession is small, so will your forgiveness be. Because it's not until you are tender-hearted with respect to your own sins and failures and you've heard the pardoning word of the Lord over you as you confess your sins that you will remain attuned to what is happening before you when someone is in need of your forgiveness. You will get to play the role of being like Jesus. Do you want to be like Jesus? Really? Then you must forgive. You must forgive, and you must resist the felt need to hold their sins against them. Remember, from last night, the gospel logic. If God treated you like you were tempted to treat them, where would you be? What if Jesus had a, uh, that's it, I'm done with them. Like, like, one more time, you got one more time. Right, we'd be done. We wouldn't even got started. Right, where would we be? We'd be in a heap of trouble. And that's, see, the call to discipleship from Jesus is more radical and demanding than we allow it to be often. When Jesus says, follow me, he really does mean it's gonna be the death of you, the old you, but he's gonna resurrect the new you. He's gonna bring into view a you you could not have conceived of. A you so beautified and, and glorified that you wouldn't even recognize them. 
You must bear that cross if you want to follow Jesus. You must deny yourself if you're going to follow Jesus. And one of the points at which it's most difficult to deny ourselves is at the point where we want to get even. We want revenge. We want them to feel what they have done. I'm going to tell you something right now. Even in bringing our sins to our awareness, God is kind because he doesn't reveal the fullness of it. If you knew the real extent of your sin, you would unravel. It's far greater and more vile and wicked and repulsive than you've ever imagined. But he doesn't, he doesn't lay it on you like that. He's even patient in how he reveals your own sin to you. He does it in time. He allows you to catch up. And, and that's why at the end of his life, Paul said that I'm the chief of sinners. It wasn't that Paul actually ethically became more sinful. It's that over time, his view of his own sin became more staggering because he began to get a truer sense of the greatness of the cross. Have you ever seen that vector where it's like the growth in the Christian life is a, in, uh, an ever-growing understanding of my sin and an ever-growing... <laughs> Y'all have seen this before. Well, praise the Lord out here. <laughs> It's that very thing. Good job, pastors. Come on. So I'm talking about we're on the same page. We're on the same page. Yes, sir. All right. So you got to confess your sins. Practice confession as a regular part of your life. That's why it's so important that we confess our sins in worship and in private. But also, start naming the tenderness of God toward you. Like in all the various ways that God has been patient and tender with you and kind. You know what it's like to be in the position that your debtor is in, don't you? And when you're in touch with God's tenderness toward you, when you're really in touch with it, it makes you shudder to think of treating them in a way that the king of glory had every right to treat you but didn't. Start naming his tenderness toward you. Practice forgiveness as both event and process. And here's what I mean. Forgiveness, again, does not remove disciplinary consequences for sin. It releases punitive consequences. When we forgive someone, it is an event. I forgive you. Parents, teach your kids how to confess and receive forgiveness and how to offer forgiveness. Get that into their rhythm. Get that into your relationships. It's an event. I forgive you. But that's not the end of the matter often, right? Every time I remember the offense, I must continue to forgive. It goes something like this. I forgive you and I will continue to forgive you as a, as a practice, as a process. And I will not act on my sinful desire for revenge. I will forgive, and I will keep striving to forgive. I'm not going to grave dig. You know what grave digging is. As when you say, I forgive you, right? This happens in marriages a lot, right? Like, why'd you leave the toilet seat up? And it's like, all right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forgive you. <laughs> Five years later. And it's like that time back in 2003 when you left the toilet seat up. <laughs> like, wait a minute. I thought you forgave me. There's still disciplinary consequences, <laughs> right? 
Don't grave dig. Don't, you know what? God does not grave dig your sins to throw them back in your face. You know what God throws in your face? His love, his mercy, your new identity. Do you know how much I love you? Do you know how much I'm for you? Do you know if I'm for you, no one else can successfully be against you? Do you know the great inheritance that you have in the saints? Do you know how close I am to you? I know you better than you know yourself, and I'm closer to you than you are to yourself. He doesn't throw your sins in your face. And neither should you throw the sins of your neighbors and your friends in their face. It's an event and a process. And forgiveness, listen, we must leave room for God's wrath. Okay, leave room for God's wrath. And this is what I mean by that. That sin that they committed is gonna be paid for. It's either gonna be paid for by Jesus because they trust in him or they're gonna pay for it for all eternity and they'll never exhaust a debt. But it's not on you to exact that revenge. The Lord says, leave room, leave room for my, he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, and he either pays that vengeance on the cross, or he will pay it on that great day. Forgiveness is really important, particularly in cross-cultural community. And I wanna say this. For people of color, our culture wants us, it wants us to get even. It wants us to get revenge. It wants us to live in a constant state of unforgiveness. And I often hear people say, you know, like they make forgiveness man-centered. Man-centered forgiveness sounds like this. Well, you know, being unforgiving is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So, you know, for your self-care, for your own mental health, you know, let it go. But I want you to see that in this passage, Forgiveness is not man-centered, it's God-centered. We must forgive because we want to be analogs of Christ and portraits of the gospel. We must forgive because that is the radical call of the disciple. We must forgive because this is God's way toward us. This is radically God-centered. That's why we forgive. And listen, the world wants people of color to get even. But God wants us to get grace. That's important. So what that means in a concrete, in American church moment right now, this is, this is family, so we can have these kinds of conversations. It doesn't need to be awkward. People of color, we need to forgive majority culture folks, white folks, as an event and a process. And white folks, you must not use that as an excuse to not make things right. That makes sense? This is what the gospel frees us to do. The gospel allows us to have these kinds of awkward, hard conversations. But like, like we, we don't, we're not here in a vacuum. This, his, this country has a history, right? And we live in the face of a lot of the results of it. I hate that those who are immigrants and come from immigrant traditions have to continually feel their sense of otherness. And it would be easy to bear that resentment toward those who always make you feel like the other, who always ask you where you from, know really where you from, right? Like, like I know it can, like, you can nurse that thing, right? You're like, you're driving, don't worry about where I'm from, right? 
about to find out. Like, want to fight people, right? It's easy to nurse that thing, and then guess what? We miss out on an opportunity to grow in grace. Again, it does not excuse the way in which people have othered you. It's just you refuse to hold it against them for God's sake. Remember, that is the few denarii to your 10,000 talents. You dig? But then in another way, our white brothers and sisters, is, is you have the opportunity to rise up and grow in grace, not only in receiving that forgiveness gratefully from your brothers and sisters of color who say, I forgive you. I'm working to process and try to forgive you, you know, from the heart, genuinely. But not to say, I'm so glad that's over and not do anything about it, right? Like, not try to make things right, not try to grow in empathy and understanding, right? To not try and repair things that have been broken or change unhealthy systems and patterns, whether they're unhealthy patterns in your own life or unhealthy, uh, systemically uh, dysfunctional, whether it's in business or in educational systems or uh, in local church systems that are predisposed to favor those who have already had power. Now listen, I, we, there's, there are things that we can learn from the social sciences, but the, in the scriptures, we see the way that Jesus calls his people to navigate the power differentials. And he's constantly calling Israel to not further marginalize those who are weak and vulnerable, right? That's a constant thing he lays upon folks. And, you know, that was, that was really supposed to be essentially demonstrated in Israel's king. Israel's king was to be the premier executor of justice, making sure that the vulnerable were protected, making people included in that, in that space, to make sure that people didn't harvest all their crops. No, they had to leave the corners for those who were in need. There were all kinds of ways that God had established his community to ensure that the powerful did not trample on those who were vulnerable and weak in society. Uh, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, primarily. But also, when the prophets are bringing judgment against God's people, that's why the prophets talk so much about the injustices and the oppression that God's people were participating in. Here's why. Because the prophets, all they were doing was saying, go back to what God told us to do. Go back to covenant faith that was laid out for us in the, in the Torah. They weren't often adding anything new. They were calling them back to what was central to their faith. And so, white brothers and sisters, where you have opportunities to make these things right, that's, act, that's an act of love, an act of repair, and it's a very Christian thing to say, this, is not, this does not work out for the flourishing of my brothers and sisters. So I, as an act of love and as an act of solidarity, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my hand to the task of trying to make things right. This isn't about white guilt. We never wanna operate out of guilt or shame or fear. This is about having a vision, a God-sized vision of the way that human relationships and flourishing in society was always meant to be. In a healthy kingdom society, everyone flourishes. 
Not just those who worked hard and made their money and, you know, sorry for the rest of you. It's all of grace. But in the, in the kingdom, everyone flourishes. We just have to be a, attentive to this stuff. This is why forgiveness is really important. I remember when the Charleston Nine uh, were murdered, there was an article that came out and it said black Christians should stop forgiving white racists. And I, I've had a conversation with my community about that and I used it in a sermon to say that everything in the culture, the fever pitch of our culture, defaults us against forgiveness. But we must resist that because we know that forgiveness is one of the most beautiful gems that we have in our faith and it's one of the most important ways that we cut against the culture. We have to be a countercultural community and a cross-cultural community. This is what has always confounded the world. And when the church was most on its game in these ways, that's when it, it had the greatest impact on the world. If you refuse to hold people's sins against them, if you practice forgiveness in this way, it's gonna spark conversations with people. Why don't you get them? Why don't you blast them? Why are you, why are you letting them off the hook? And you can say, it's not letting them off the hook. It's seeking their greater good. Because here's the thing. We want people to change, right? How do people change? By the grace of God. When you refuse to show the grace of God, you're withholding the very potential for their change. You see how that works? You say, y'all need to change. And I'm not showing you the grace you need to change. So good luck, right? <laughs> right? It doesn't make any sense. Have you ever thought that your forgiveness and the grace that you show is going to be the very means by which they do change? Yeah? It's tough. But we got to have these kind of conversations within the family of faith, right? We can't let awkwardness get in the way of us living up into the full stature of Christ. We have a beautiful opportunity to be that community of love. Here's the thing, and I'm gonna say this again before this weekend's over. The world may outthink us. The world might outstrategize us, but the world must never outlove us. Never. <laughs> we got gospel love. They must never outlove us. So let's pray that the Lord helps us to work this out. It takes wisdom, it takes perseverance, it takes grace, but by his spirit, we can live up into this. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word.